Let's pray. God, I'm just, uh, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that we gather together as believers to praise you, that Pastor shared, Father, um, I'm grateful that you love us, that you want us to enter in to know you more intimately and deeply. It's like I'm supercharged when I'm here with my brothers and sisters, praising you all in, asking you to have your way, whatever way that looks like, Lord. Make these holy hands for your purpose, Lord. May this be holy lips to speak your words of truth. Take our heart, our mind, our soul itself, and consecrate it for your will and your purpose. Jesus, you deserve all the honor, all the praise, all blessing, all power to you. And we're grateful. We're grateful that you love us so much to come to show us what life can be like, to show us the goodness of who the Father is, to die for our sins when we certainly did not deserve it, still don't deserve it, won't ever be able to deserve it, and make us from creatures into brothers and sisters, into heirs, We have no idea how good you are or what heaven holds. Just a taste of that. Lord, we're looking forward to being in your presence with the angels singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, praising you over and over, basking in your glory, praying that you get every bit of the honor you're due. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've... Uh, Taking a little detour a couple weeks ago in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and then Brother Glenn shared last week and on Sunday messages that I certainly needed to hear. I don't know if you did, but we're going back to the fourth chapter, and we're going to start on the sixth verse the second half of it. So because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified, for the God did not call us to uncleanliness, but in holiness. He did not call us to uncleanliness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has given us His Holy Spirit. Wow. You know, there are four reasons, it says here, that God wants us to have sexual purity. The first part, that God is the avenger. He's going to give an account for everything. 
Each one of us will be before the Lord God. Yes, we'll have Jesus before us, but we will have to give an account of our lives. What we did with what he gave us. Just like the servants who had the different minas, one, five, and ten, we'll have to give an account. And there are rewards in heaven. And it's not like we'll be rejected by God. I mean, unless you don't have a relationship with Jesus and you don't have atoning grace on your life. And if you haven't, by all means, surrender to that. But if we go on in ongoing sin, we are basically spiting God. So he says the avenger, he's going to avenge us. He did not call us, so there's a calling. That's the second reason. God has placed a call on our lives, each one of us. He's called us to live holy and consecrated lives. And that doesn't mean that we live it just on Sundays and Wednesdays. That means every moment of every day, we decide that these are holy hands and these are holy lips, that our lives belong to Him. We have to be all in. We've, we've had this false belief in American Christianity that we can have the American way and Christ. That is a lie. That is a lie from hell. There's only one way, and that's through Jesus. There's only one way, and that's a life that's consecrated, that's holy and pure. God will give an account. He's called us to it. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. And then move for a little further on in verses 15 to 20. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and here's the kicker, and you are not your own. For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We've already shared those verses here when we went through the First Corinthians study. It's good to have that reminder again. This is what God's called us. We are no longer our own. When we're saying the, singing those songs about this being holy hands and holy lips, we're basically saying these belong to God. 
We have to ask ourselves each moment of the day, am I living like these belong to God or do I live like they belong to me for my plans and my purposes? And what it says here, look at that part going back to First Thessalonians. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but rejecting God. So when we choose to sin, we're spiting in the face of God. We're spiting in the face of God. We're rejecting God. Every sin that we do is a rejection of the Lord. He knows that. He's gracious. He loves us. He knows our frame. And yes, when we repent, truly repent, and come before him, he forgives us, gladly forgives us. But like a loving father, like Jesus said to the woman, he wants us to sin no more. He wants us to walk in that purity, in that consecration. And that's what Paul's telling the Thessalonian church and he's telling us. That same thing that he wants because God is holy, God is good. And the other thing is Unlike those who don't have, you know, when you're his, we have a power that non-believers do not have. We have the Holy Spirit. You know it. It speaks to you. That spirit is the one who's saying, don't do that. Stop. You get roadblocks. Those of us who've tried to sin or chased after that, there's times when there's been roadblocks put in our way. God's giving us mercy to extend that. He doesn't want us to sin. He is helping us to walk in purity and holiness. But in the hardness of our heart, in our bitterness, in our self-righteousness, sometimes we just say to God, shove it and go on. <coughs> May it not be so, please, brothers. That's why he says flee. He talks about the body. You know, we use that phrase, the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit for lots of different things. Ah, that's why I shouldn't smoke, that's why I shouldn't drink, that's why I shouldn't do drugs. But really, in the context of this verse, it's talking about sexual purity. It's talking about purity of that heart, and it's so intimately tied. It's so charged. And what you can see in what's happening in society now is society is so immersed in it. It's become so distorted and perverted. And it's so readily available. It used to be hard... To, to get exposed to that. Now it's everywhere. It's commonly available. It's right in your pocket, in your phone. And so we have to be even more vigilant. We have to be even more diligent. We have to care more. Care about what Jesus wants. We can't have the luxury of having guardrails. We don't have the same guardrails that they had 50 years ago. We don't have those same blocks and difficulties, inaccessibilities. It's all readily available. We're literally on the edge of a mountain, a mountain precipice, literally at the edge, about to fall off the cliff. And you can be right at the edge, or you can get as close as possible away from it, as furthest away that you can be. And so we can't even dabble with little things. We can't even think, oh, that's not so bad. Every little bit will lead us down that wrong path. And that's the challenge for us. 
we're called each and every day to a deeper level of holiness and consecration. We can't tread water. We can't stay still. We can't be like we were just last week, let alone last year. We have to press forward deeper into the kingdom that God has for us. Now, I'm not saying we won't stumble. Yes, we may stumble. God knows that. But God wants us to get back up, call out to him and go, Abba, Father, forgive me. I took my eyes off of you. I chose my own way. I was selfish. I cared about my thoughts and feelings instead of what you wanted in your plans. I love you. Help me to love you more. I believe in you. Help me to believe and trust in you more. Pray. God is always there willing to seek us when we're humble and contrite before him. True humility. So, he talks about all through this. Why do we walk in holiness? And we, we talked about this two weeks ago. One, to please God. In verse one, he addresses that. In verses two and three, to obey God. Verses four and five, to glorify God. And now in six to eight, to escape judgment. There will be judgment, gentlemen. There will be. His word says it. Every single human being who's ever lived will be brought before a holy God. We can talk about and quibble exactly when that's going to happen and I have some clear ideas, but there's no question every single one of us will be brought before God. And we'll have to give an account. Not, not like I want to scare you or ooh, scare you into doing right things. That's not it. You just have to realize it's going to happen. We're just going to have to be face up. That's the reality. We can't hide out and escape. None of us can hide out. That's the thing. We think with sin, we can hide out with it. There is no sin that is ever hidden. It is all exposed. God sees everything at all times in every place through all time. And he knows every single thought that we have. And he loves us in spite of all that. So he's on our side, helping us, encouraging us. So that's the opportunity is do we want to press into that? D.L. Moody says, a holy life will make the deepest impression. Lighthouses blow no horns, they just shine. And this is one of the things that Paul's talking about is what does that mean for a holy life? A holy life is going to be almost the opposite of the American life. The American dream of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that is not the dream of Christ. That's not the walk of a Christian. The walk of a Christian is what? A bondservant. It says we belong to God. We're slaves to Christ, so we're not free. We're not free to sin. We have freedom in Christ as that servant, but we're not free to sin. So there's restrict happiness, 
Well, that's sometimes what they're talking about is temporal joy. We're talking about real joy that's going to be eternal. So we may not always, we may have the fellowship of the suffering, we may not always be happy. So let's move on to the next verses in 9 to 10. But concerning brotherly love, you have, heard, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you, ought, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. I love what Paul says here. He first admonishes and he encourages the Thessalonians to be in holiness. Okay? But he tells one of the key ways that we do that is acting in love, in serving others. How we get of ourselves and our sin, our focus, is this self-focus. This idea that woe is me, and you get to see all the circumstances, like Peter did, he saw the waves. When we're showing our love for the brethren, when we're pouring out our love for others and helping others in need, we get it ourselves, we get the grace of God, but also we don't sin. Showing real Christ-like love of the brethren was the answer to sin. As Christ, as the Holy Spirit's working, a surrender to that and loving others. So pouring out a life of service. If we're a bondservant, that's what we're going to do. And so that's what Paul's telling the Thessalonian church. He says, do it, but he's also saying, hey, do more. That's an opportunity for us. And you have that. Those is what does it mean to serve? One of the things I love here is this church is a, is a loving church and a serving church. We have to ask God, how can I serve? And we've, we have, we put requests out there. There's plenty of chances for those here to serve within some of the ministries here, but also to help out this Saturday morning. We're going to be um, picking up some bags for helping hands, and Sunday we're going to pass out turkeys to um, the community over at the trailer park just, just north on Highway 25, Dixie Highway, and also at Dry Ridge Housing Authority. There's opportunities to bless others who have need, to continually see and look for the needs of others. That is the antidote to selfishness and sinfulness. Moving on, verses 11 to 12, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. So to lead a quiet life, that's also not the American thing. Everything now, if you look at the videos, whether it's TikTok and all that stuff, it's all about exaltation of the person. We're taking selfies. <laughs> you know, we're, we're doing all these video clips to show how good we are, and we're looking to see how many followers we have. It's all about that whole thing of exaltation of the self. And Paul is telling be quiet, a quiet life that's kind of under the radar, that doesn't draw attention that's humble, that says, mind your own business. Wow, mind your own business. That's hard for us. In any place we are, we don't tend to mind our own business. 
you're in any community, any group, whether you're at work, oh, do you hear what happened to so-and-so? Oh, what happened there? Hey, what happened? And you want to know what's going on. And sometimes we want to know the misery that they go on, so we feel better about ourselves because, hey, we're not as bad as that. That is not what Paul's telling the Thessalonian church. He's telling them, mind your own business. Quiet, unassuming, not drawing attention. Mind your own business. And then he says, what? To work with your own hands. Does that mean you can't be an accountant or a computer engineer? Do you have to be like a mechanic or a plumber or, you know, what, what does that mean? It means work for a living. It means do your own work. It means being humble and being industrious. It means not thriving on the benefit of what others do. Not to say you can't have some, and not to say you can't be in a supervisor role, and not to say you can't lead a company, but you're not leading a company and sitting back. You're right in it. We know what happened with David when he sat back when he was supposed to lead to go to war. That's when he ended up in trouble. It's the same spirit and attitude saying, look, you have to get right into it. You can have a company, but you're involved in it just as much as anybody else. You're actually leading by example, showing the others how to do. The leaders that we tend to exalt, those even in battle or, or even other captains of industry are the wolves who literally got their hands into it, who showed by example that they were servants. Okay, and then he says that you may walk properly. So I let you know that we are blessed in this congregation, in this church, small that it is, because we're not, you know, into the big flash. I mean, you're talking to a guy, you know, I like lighting. Can you see the thing here? This is kind of thing that I like. I like things to look as good as they can. But, you know, we're not into the big effects. So I may be speaking prematurely because I think we're going to have some effects for the Christmas play. But, uh, <laughs> but generally speaking, the idea is it's not about, we're doing it not because we want to make ourselves look good. Okay? Not to entertain. That's what a lot of church services are. It's a big show. It's a big production. And I've been to those things. I've been to Passion Conference, and, you know, it's an entertainment. It's a show. It's a production. And I see the attraction for that. We like to go to those things, even movies that we see that look bigger and bigger bang, bigger pizzazz, bigger excitement, bigger thrills, like an amusement park that has those things. We want that roller coaster, that thrill, that excitement, that energy. That's not what Paul is telling us to do. That's not what Jesus wants to do. He wants us to be humble. Now, does that mean we can't have joy? That's not true at all. You can see today when we worship the Lord, we had amazing joy. Amazing, real joy, and that's the real joy. It's not something that's light, superficial. It's not a flash and bang. It's about something that changes your heart. It's something that reaches to your soul. That happens when you can both be quiet and sensitive to the Spirit. That's the matter of proper walking that Paul's talking about. And then you show others. When we show that, if somebody who doesn't know Christ came into the service tonight, what would they see? 
they would see people who, was, who are loving Jesus. They don't see people who are stiff. They see people who are passionate about their love of God, who are all into it. When they see that and they're greeted, they see people who show love to them, who show real sincere care, who aren't just about being superficial, don't really care about what they look like or how they dress, just pleased, grateful that they came. Grateful to who? Grateful to God, that God drew them here. And that we have the privilege as believers to work with God in his kingdom to bring others to him. That's something, God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. There's nothing he needs of us. He is completely self-sufficient. Jesus did not need to come to this earth to die on the cross for us. He does not need us. Any worship song that gives you that idea, that's a false belief system. He is completely self-satisfied, completely content in who he is. He is perfect in every way. But out of that perfect love, he came down for us because he is perfect. A perfect love, he, that's what Jesus was, an example, perfect love, sacrificial, giving up the right to have things your way. Came down as a baby, we're going to celebrate that, and he left. And really, Jesus lived a quiet life. He was raised as a carpenter's son. I mean, it was 30 years old before he really came to the scene, even though at 12 he was speaking in the temple. He didn't bring his, and he, and he, he basically told them, hey, he healed them. He said, don't tell anybody. He was not interested in bringing fame or fortune away. At no time did he want to bring attention to himself. If anything, he was not trying to build his kingdom. He was telling people, this is what's going to be. The bread, you know, I'm the bread of heaven. People left because they found it difficult to hear his sayings. And he's asking his disciples, are you going to leave too? They all left. He says, where are we going to go, Peter says. He'd given it all to you. That's what he wants. Those of us who are willing to give all to him to realize the treasure that they have in him. Not because there's any flash, not because there's attention, not because life is going to be better. We don't become Christians so we can have a better life. Life will be better because of who Jesus is. But that's not the reason to become a Christian. That's not the reason to come to church. The reason to come to church is because he commanded us to be his brothers and sisters in Christ together. Is to allow God to encounter us in a way that we can't do on our own. Because when two or three are gathered, he's there. When more passionately seeking him, he's ever more present. And we are a body that are hungrily, passionately seeking God, wanting more of his presence, knowing that he has to change us. We can't be how we once were to have the fullness of Christ show up in us or show up here. We want to see God. We need to be changed by him to become more like Christ surrendered, depending on him, wanting him desperately, then we'll see God. And the more our desperation, the more our lowliness, the more holy and consecrated we are, the more we'll see Jesus. 
because our hearts will be open. We'll be sensitive to the Spirit. And the more God draws near to that, because he draws near to those who are contrite and humble. That's what he wants, because that's who he is. In 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 2, Paul says, Therefore I exert, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. So he's going through a trial there at that time with what's happening in the Roman kingdom under tension. And we're going through a trial now with what's happening in the world. So the same admonition then is now for us. We don't have to be big. We don't have to be anything else. All we have to do is the task that he's laid before us is to pray, to live and walk humbly with our God. And then in 1 Thessalonians 3.10, that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. I want us to examine ourselves to see what a proper walk looks like. Every day we're called to examine ourselves. It says that in Ephesians, to examine yourself. I want us to examine ourselves to say, is this the day that we truly believe the Lord has made, are we walking in joy with him? What does that look like to have a proper walk with the Lord? We can talk about formulas, a quiet time where things are, but I want to examine in the midst of us going through the day, what does that look like? And you'll see what he's saying. That's what Paul's doing. He's ex he, Paul continually examines himself to see his walk. He's always evaluating where things are. And he does receive correction. And he's willing to obviously give correction. That's part of that. And some of the ways that we're going to walk properly is I need to ask. We'll need to ask one another, those that we live with, those that know us, hey, how is my walk with Jesus? Do I show Jesus to you? Do you see Jesus in me? Are you lifed? by being in my presence. Ed Buke said something, and those from Pure Life will know Pastor Ed there, and he said, you know, what happens to the dynamics of the room when you enter in? Are people encouraged to see you, wanting to see you? That's the spirit that we bring. That's part of a proper walk. That's the lighthouse of showing the light that D.L. Moody talked about. So that's what genuine Christian maturity looks like, a proper walk. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 14, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For who believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. There's a few points here. So we're changing tack a little bit here. Now we're going to go to the part that everybody talks about usually in this chapter because everybody wants to know about the end times, what's going to happen. 
okay? And this is kind of the beginning, the introduction to that, where Paul is basically saying, look, I don't want you to be ignorant. He uses that word a few other times. I'm going to read that in Romans 11.25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. So he didn't want them to be ignorant of God's plan for Israel. Right now, with what's happening now, we forget that God still has a plan for Israel. He still has a plan for the Jews. It'll all be through Christ, but he definitely has a plan for them. He has not forgotten them. There was a period we'd been grafted in that he didn't want them to be ignorant. And we can be ignorant. We go, ah, God doesn't care about them anymore. We are now the new Jews. We are now the spiritual Jews that God was talking about. I do not believe that. There's not good foundation for that. And that's, there's an ignorance, there's a blindness that we're unaware of that. The other part in 1 Corinthians 12, 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. A lot of people think, hey, there are no more spiritual gifts, or there's only a certain number. That's not what the Word of God says. It says, I don't want you to be ignorant. I want you to be aware. Some people choose blindness, ignorant. I'm not going to deal with that because I'm uncomfortable because I don't know how to handle that or that's already passed. That was at that time. That was during the apostolic age. Nothing in Scripture says that. That's man's interpretation, reasoning of man on top of it. I believe everything in the Word of God is available for us. Everything in the Word of God is available to us. And then he says in the third one, don't be ignorant about suffering and trials. 2 Corinthians 1.8, for we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength so that we despaired even of life. So there's four times Paul's talking about being not being ignorant. I don't want you to be ignorant, right, of what's God's plan for the Jews. I don't want you to be ignorant of the spiritual gifts that are available to the body of believers. I don't want you to be ignorant about suffering. Suffering that we went through, and guess what? Suffering that we may have to go through. Suffering that the underground church is going through right now. Suffering that believers around the world know that's normative. We're, we've been insulated from that. We think that that's normal, like the Western Christian is normal, like Western ideals are normal. That's not biblical. And then he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of what's going to come. And we're going to talk about that part, what God's plan is, what's God's plan. So he uses the term falling asleep, and I hope most of you know what he means by that, but basically he means dead, but not in the way that most non-believers believe. I'm going to quote some things from some of the Greeks at the time. At that time, Aeschylus said, 
of a man once dead, there is no resurrection. Theocritus said, hopes are among the living, the dead are without hope. The Roman Catullus said, suns may set and rise again, but we, when once our brief light goes down, down must sleep an endless night. Now, Paul says the word sleep because what do we know about sleep? We know that we will awaken. So he's saying the sleep that this death that we have on this earth now is temporary. We will be awakened. We will be resurrected. Okay? This life is not all there is. That expression, YOLO, you only live once, well, that's actually not true. Praise God, we will live again. We will live again. Philippians 1.23, For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Which is far better. So, we forget that. We keep thinking this world is all that there is, and that's good. That's not true. We have to keep our eyes on eternity. It will be much better in heaven. It will be much better in Jesus, with Jesus. That doesn't mean that we cast our lives away and we ignore everything. That's what I'm telling you about. But if we're a bondservant of Christ, we're living for his purpose and his plan, knowing that this will pass. This is like mist. It's vapor. It's temporary. It's transient. What we will have in eternity will be eternal. Will be forever. Will be perfect in every way. Perfect in every way. So much better. That's what Paul said. To live as Christ, to die is gain. So he says, and he tells them, look, I don't want you to soar of those who don't have hope. Right? Lest you soar as others who have no hope. Who doesn't have hope? We just talked about that. Those who don't believe in the resurrection, those who don't have a relationship with Christ, they have no hope. I was going through some old writings, and I shared that a little bit with Eric, with, of, my, of my wife who died in a wait. I talked about her love for Jesus and wanted to write a book about that. I gotta look. I don't remember seeing a book. But I have a hope that I will see her again. We have a hope that we'll see those who've died in Christ again. Of course we miss her and there's a sorrow. Of course we miss those that we love. There's a sorrow. But there's a hope. Never forget the hope that we have in Christ. So this is the gloomy description. I love what um, David Guzik had here. He said, one of the magnificent tombs for the pagans in Rome said, I was not, I became, I am not, I care not. So all these big, beautiful tombs in Rome had this declaration from these people who had money, nice mausoleums. And the Christians at that time were in the catacombs underneath the city. 
And they didn't have anything fancy. Okay? And what did they have? The only thing that they had written on there mostly was what? In peace. In peace. When we're with God, we will be in perfect peace. Psalms 4.8, I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. God is with us. We're not alone. When we have our earthly sleep that we awaken each morning and when we have our sleep, when our time on this earth and this mortal coil has passed. Moving on, verses 15 and 16. For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Wow. So when people talk about the rapture, this is what they're taking, talking about. First thing to know, the dead will rise first. It talks about that in Daniel as well, that those who sleep. I'm not exactly sure what that looks like. People have all these visual pictures of people floating in the air because at that time when Jesus comes back, he'll kind of meet them in the air, and it talks about that in Matthew. So he'll descend with a shout. There'll be a shout or a, and a trumpet. Will that be a trumpet? The whole world will hear. Will that be only those who are believers will hear? I don't know. I don't know. Okay? It'll be something those who know, those who are there will know. We'll hear it. But I don't know if everybody hear it. The voice of an archangel, the only archangel that's really described in the Bible is Michael. Some say Gabriel is one, but he's not actually officially described as an archangel, except in other Deuterocanical um, documents from the, mostly used by the Roman Catholic Church. But in the actual scriptures that we read, Michael is the only one that we know. So I don't know which archangel. Are there many? I think so, but we don't know. There's a lot of questions we don't have answers to. Hebert says, the living will have no advantage over those fallen asleep. They will not meet the returning Christ ahead of the dead, nor will they have any precedence in the blessed of his coming. The thing to appreciate that I love what it says here is God is going to come for each one of us. While we're here, whether we're dead or alive, we will meet Jesus. Jesus is going to come for us individually, every one of us doesn't matter whether you're living or not. He's that's still personal. It's still a personal relationship. He still loves us that much. That he's going to come for each one of us. Each one of us.
Moving on to verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Thus we will always be with the Lord. So the word, this is the rapture they talk about. The word caught up, translated from the Greek to Latin, is translated rapturo. Hence, we get the word rapture from. So the people talk about the word rapture is not in the Bible. Well, it's a Latin, well, anglicized version of the Latin for caught up. Just like the word baptismo, baptism, is basically immersion. Just like the word, we don't have the actual words of Trinity, but baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit repeatedly referred to. So are we going to be caught up? Yes. Some people say that's not going to happen. They, are, they don't believe in any kind of rapture. They don't believe it will be in heaven, that this is all there is and all there ever will be. Um, kind of a Carl Sagan quote, that's not what the Word of God says. Okay, so if you have questions about that and not sure and you want to have a further discussion with me, I'm happy to meet with you to talk to you about it, but it's very obvious in Scripture that we will be caught up, i.e. raptured. Okay? And this is in the cloud. So there will be, and I encourage you to look through Matthew 24 if you really want to spend some more time about it. I'm going to tell you about a few things about rapture. And this is the part that we don't know about. Um, There's a lot of people who spend a lot of time in what's called eschatology, which is the study of end times. And they'll They'll, uh, and you talked to me 20 years ago and I looked through all that stuff and read different positions and thought different beliefs and we can go to a long discussion about that. Kind of interesting, not that important. Okay, really not that important. Much more important to live the quiet life. Much more important to walk properly with the Lord. Okay, that's the thing that we need to remember. Okay, not to be caught up. There is, you know, the pre-tribulation that will happen before Daniel's 70th week and the last seven years and the mid-trib, it'll happen the midpoint or after the tribulation and then, or the pre-wrath position, which is what I used to really believe in and probably still maybe like, I don't know. I don't know. I really don't know. What I do know is God is good, okay? He's not going to let us suffer any more than we need to. He's going to work all things to good. Jesus is going to come personally for each one of us. God is not something. So when the ones who go through, well, there's some people, oh, well, we won't suffer any trial. So they like that pre-trib. We may have suffering. I don't know what that looks like. Okay? You have to realize that because God uses that to make us more like Christ. God uses that to show others. That's what happened to me when I saw the suffering of a pastor made the faith appealing to me. Because I saw somebody who did something against what the world says. So God will use that. It may be some point mid, whether it's exactly the midpoint or someplace before wrath, I don't know. Or maybe after, I don't know for sure. God doesn't want us to suffer needlessly. No suffering by the Lord is needless. God doesn't, he's not somebody who wants to punish us because we do wrong. I want us to remember that. 
He's not trying to punish you for doing wrong. I'm kind of willing to do that. You did wrong, man. You bang. That's not who God is. He wants to lead us to repentance. He doesn't want us to continue to make mistakes. He will scourge every son he receives, so he will trial us, just like a good father will sometimes press their son into something harder, knowing that it'll make them stronger, make them tougher, make their backs able to bear the weight that they need to. I grew mainly through my suffering, not through my good times. My characters developed mainly through suffering. More to, more to come. I need a lot more character, a better character. But it's mainly in my suffering that my character developed. Mainly when I'm frustrated and not getting what I want. Realizing that my wants were amiss. That's what God is doing. So He uses that. So we may have suffering. But knowing the end, the joy will be good. It will be perfect. We will be home. It will not be wasted. And the more we're conformed to Christ, as I've shared, the greater our rewards will be in heaven. The greater our joy will be. I know it's hard to imagine that. Because we'll say, oh, perfect joy, what does it look like? I don't know exactly. But I know the more we're like Christ, the more we'll be able to appreciate what heaven's about. Because nobody appreciates heaven better than Christ. That's what we want to aim for. And that means forsaking things of this world and choosing to focus on things above. So what Paul's saying about not being ignorant is these things are going to happen. We need to be aware of a little bit of the season of the times, and you're going to hear some things when we're talking about prophecy. And But we're not talking about it so that you need to make sure you've cleared out your bank accounts or you've sold this or bought that. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, hey, the time is drawing nigh. We need to press into Jesus even more. We need to be completely sold out for Him. We can't be thinking, this is just for me. We can't waste the time. The time is drawing short. We keep thinking, ah, He'll never come. He's talked about for 2,000 years, what's going to happen? Every generation believes that Jesus is going to come now, so I don't know, maybe it'll be 100 years. A day is like 1,000 years to God, so could be still three days from now. That's 3,000 years, so we don't have to worry. Don't you believe it? That's not what the Word says. The Word says, redeem the time. The Word says, we have today. We can't worry about tomorrow. The Word says, press in. Take a hold. Be sober. Live a godly life. Focus on Him. Not about where things are, not about thinking, not about thinking about all these things so that we get distracted. The point is to know those things, know the seasons, to go, hey, we need to be prepared. We may need to know that to share with others the importance of, hey, this may need to be the day of your salvation because look what's happening. To use that to appeal to others who don't know Jesus. They're drowning. We need to throw the life, the gospel is the lifesaver. You're seeing people every day dying and going to hell. And they think they're okay. Do we care? Are we so wrapped in ourselves that we don't care? 
Let's care. Jesus cared. He came down because he cared. He's going to come again. The rapture caught up with him because he cares. Let us care. If we're focused on big things, what's going to happen, distracted, even world events, look at it in the, in, in the view, in the context of eternity. Not out of frustration with what's happening, not of what the, what the world does. And so part of the challenge is we really need to watch what kind of media comes that way because the media will not be able to give us a correct picture. Even Christian media, because it's not fully biblically based, must be filtered through the Word of God. Talk to your brothers about this. This is really important to see what's happening. We'll talk a little bit more about that, but I want you to be prepared where things are to know that God is going to come back for us. He has not forgotten us. He is patient and long-suffering. I think time, the time of the Gentiles will come to the end. God's not forsaken Israel. He's going to come back for, for Israel. And what you're seeing unfolding in the Middle East is part of that plan with that. Making us think, oh, wow, I really need to press in. So, let's pray. Dear Lord, for, oh, one more. Last, last verses. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. There you go. These words are intended for comfort, not to make you anxious. That's what I've been trying to do. Lord, Father, thank you for the goodness of who you are. Thank you for what you're doing. Father, I just pray, Lord, that we can take hold of what you have, how good you how good you are, what you want to do to give us right thinking. To give up our ambitions and plans, trust you. To love you wholly and more completely. To serve what you have to work, to do things, to be industrious, not to be navel-gazing by any means. But Lord, we pray that in each man here that you will have the maximum glory, every bit of the glory you deserve in our lives. Conforming us all to the image of Jesus because Jesus, you deserve nothing less. I pray your blessing on each man in your name. Amen.